We all become architects because we want to design projects. What we never realize is that we can actually design culture. Hi, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today we have Alan Maskin, a principal and owner from Olsen Kundig. Alan Maskin leads an interdisciplinary team of architects, designers, visual artists, and researchers. For over two decades, Alan has pursued unconventional design challenges in public places, which includes recently being awarded first place in international design competitions for the Bob Dylan Center, the Jewish Museum Berlin Kinder Museum, and Fairy Tales 2016, the world's largest architectural ideas competition. Other built works include museums, installations, exhibits, visitor-based destinations, and urban park projects. We are excited to talk with Alan about his work designing public spaces and bringing experimental forms of representation and projects into Olsen Kunig's practice. Let's dive in. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be back in Houston. Thanks for having me. We like to ask people, what can we do together that we cannot do apart? which speaks to having a certain intention when considering public or collective spaces. I'd like to know exactly what that intention is. What unique interactions do you see happening in these spaces that may not happen elsewhere? I want to go to the origin of the comment that you just quoted. And I'm, I, I love this question because it's actually a comment that has a very genuine meaning to me. But it came out of an experimental project that Olsen Kundig did a couple of years ago. It was during the recession the very beginning of it and our neighborhood had a lot of people that were forfeiting on their leases and it really felt like a sort of depressed neighborhood and so there was a space in our building that became available and so we took over the lease with the intention of somehow using it for a sort of community experiment in some ways and what happened is over the next two years we called it Starfront Olsen Kundig and we did over 18 installations uh, and events in that space within a two-year period. And this is on top of trying to run a full-time, fairly ambitious architecture firm. So it was pretty significant. And at first we began and we were just testing out how to use this space. We would arrange these different collaborations. And the very first one was to make a record store and turn it into a record store where nothing was for sale, but everyone in the community would be welcome. And by that I mean uh, we partnered with Sandra Jackson Dumont, who's the head of uh, the Department of Education at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, and she's brilliant. And she was in Seattle at the time. And we created this record store where we had 3,000 LPs that we had collected. And half of them had come from Bernie, who was an African-American man who grew up in the Central District in Seattle. And so his record collection was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. There was soul, gospel, uh, rhythm and blues, and it was an amazing and brilliant collection, but very particular to him. And then we had another collection by a, a local artist and an activist, a gay activist named Stephen, and he had a number of records. And if, if you saw those, you would think, well, he spent a lot of time at the clubs. The concept was that people would come to this space, they could experience these collections, and that each of these sort of communities would come and be drawn independently. And so add to that the design community or the arts community in our neighborhood, and suddenly a group of people is gathering that never really gathers in Seattle very often. And at first uh, you would go down and every night there was a presenter who would come and they would use those 3,000 records to tell stories about their own lives, their own beliefs, their own values. When we set this up originally, we were open for a month, it became hugely popular and thousands, not 
thousands of people over the course of the installation came there. And again, it was a gathering that was unlike any other that would happen in Seattle, where different groups were mixing in a way. And I thought I would just come in the first couple of nights, and I ended up going every single night that it was open because what happened in there just changed. Sometimes it was a huge party. Other times there were very intimate stories that were being told, teenagers writing poetry, using the records, things along those lines. And so it was in that experience that we realized that something happened by bringing people together where the whole was somehow greater than the sum of the parts. The Seattle Art Museum couldn't have done that installation without having a design partner. We certainly couldn't have done it without having the collections of these two very, very different men. And then the events and the programs taught us that this is kind of a space that we should really cultivate. So we continued, and we would donate $1,000 a month and a lot of sweat equity, and all of the people in the firm would volunteer for different projects. And every Thursday we have a design crit in the office where we all come together and we talk about design and there's beer and there's food, but mostly someone will post a project. And so we would talk about storefront and what should we do next because this was so successful. And at one of these crits, I take a ferry boat home at the end of the day. I live on the Olympic Peninsula outside of Seattle and I'm looking over my notes from this last crit. And Gabriella Frank, our marketing director, said, well, why don't we open a mushroom farm? Why don't we grow food? Because food will be an important issue in the world going further. And so I remember I circled that one. That was without question the wildest and sort of most impossible thing. Like this, there's no, not much daylight in this space. We're mm -hmm. gonna grow food in an interior environment. So we partnered with uh, our local community. We had a mushroom farmer come in who actually took used coffee grounds and actually uh, prepared them to grow mushrooms. And then people would come in every single day to watch mushrooms grow which is a bit of a Zen activity, if you think about it. And this totally could have failed, like everything about it. And that was the idea of doing a design experiment. But after about three and a half weeks, the first mushroom popped out and then more. And then pretty soon we had over 200 pounds of food that we had grown in this greenhouse that we created. Now the New York Times, uh, Pilar Velatis, a design writer, was interested in this and she wrote about it. And then suddenly the Starfront Project got an enormous amount of almost international attention. It had that kind of notoriety. So at that point, and I created Storefront with my business partner, Kirsten Murray, and she and I would alternate. And after the New York Times article, we would get contacted constantly by people like, I'm an artist, I want to show my work there, or I make furniture, I want to show my work there. And that was not what we wanted it to be. It had to be some group of people and some issue where we would work together somehow to solve the problem. So the idea of the, of the question, what can we do together that we cannot do apart, that became the basis of almost every single piece that we actually built. And so working with all of those different community partners obviously required a lot of collaboration. And what did you kind of learn through that process? And how have you seen it then been applied to working on architectural designs? I think that the thing that was the, the greatest takeaway was that you have to kind of let go a little bit of your own design ego to some extent. And you have to actually allow yourself and trust yourself. Uh, and again, there were many designers at Olson Kundig that actually participated in this. You have to kind of loosen your grip on this notion of my idea, and you have to allow it to become our idea. There's a moment in the carryover that comes to all of my projects, and I think I knew this before the Storefront project, but there's a moment, because every client we work with the best clients that we, that we work with, frankly, are the ones who go really deep and engage in this project, and it means as much to them as it does to us. 
And there's a moment in the process sometimes when they take the pencil out of your hand and they start to draw, like, hey, maybe it could be like this. And it takes a lot of courage for them to get to that point, frankly, because they, you know, a lot of them are self-conscious about drawing or they want to caveat with, I'm not a designer, but it doesn't mean they don't have ideas. And when that happens, that's when you know you're cooking. And so the storefront was this exercise where, you know, again, every month we're going to try another experiment with another group of people. And, you know, after 18, you learn a few things, I think, about the methods for how to get people to sort of come forward and sort of be in design with you. And designing all of those different installations at $1,000 a month is very cheap. You had to learn how to use affordable materials, and also you had to make these spaces for multiple purposes. Do you think that affect the way you design? It absolutely did, because you're right. $1,000 means you're looking to find uh, reused materials. So I'll give you one example. For the mushroom farm, we needed to build a greenhouse so we could control the environment and the temperature and the humidity. And so within the storefront, we had another building and structure. And, and you can see it on our website. And uh, we used all of the wood ribs that made this kind of organic sort of husk that we created. Um, they all were made from uh, plywood that was used uh, to cast concrete walls. And so that was all reused plywood. And then it actually went to live somewhere else um, and, and had another yet another use. We also used recycled uh, items for the record store. And so we had to be really, frankly, scrappy about um, and very facile in being able to work with whatever we could find. But at the same time, trying to find a, a, you know, a real level of design that could be done affordably. Now, the $1,000 a month was for materials only, I should be clear. And we also would pull in a lot of our partners. So uh, construction work workers that we uh, work with regularly um, often came. People loved working on this project, mm -hmm. frankly. So uh, there was a lot of volunteer work. And then there was a ton of sweat equity from the people that work at Olson Quimby. Because again, you know, they all had projects. They all had work that was due. And then nights and weekends, uh, we'd be trying to create a, an experiment in, in culture, design, and trying to create new forms of collaboration. Since so much of your work focuses on public space, what resources do you look to in researching and determining the public's experiences in these spaces that you're going to create? For instance, do you study human behavior or seek out voices in the community that inform the way these works will operate in the built environment? Uh, without question, I'm trying to come up with an example specifically that I can tell you, There's, a, but there's many. So a portion of my portfolio, certainly not all of it, is about working with children. And I was a teacher for a decade, working with really young kids and teaching art before I uh, went into architecture school. And so I had a real interest in children's ability to sort of be imaginative themselves, to draw, and to, uh, to engage them in a design process. And this began at the uh, Skirball Cultural Center, where I designed my second museum project, which was Noah's Ark at Skirball. It's still open. It sells out every day. And they have an extraordinary team of people that I worked with to create this project. And the thing that I learned from them was that they brought us along with them. So museum educators and designers were brought into the public school system, and we actually met with kids. And they had a lot of questions for kids. You know, we're meeting with like first graders and third graders in different groups over and over again. And they had questions that were they were interested in, like questions about diversity and quality. And it was going to be about a Noah's Ark theme. And so I'm trying to see what kids knew about that. But I came from an art and design background, and I wanted kids to draw. And so in this instance, I created a blank cartoon with four boxes. And I asked kids to draw what they knew about Noah's Ark. 
it was in LA and it, we went to a number of public schools there and then I brought it back to the studio in Seattle. I posted all these kids' drawings and I was looking for patterns. And every single kid, all 75 drawings that I was looking at, had drawn a ramp going into the ark with animals climbing on. And it didn't occur to me that that would be the most visceral memory for children of that story. And it also told me that this was going to be the most important aspect of the design. So literally stealing the ideas from children, I sort of designed an exhibit that recreates and looks almost identical to the drawings that these kids made. And the Skirball has told me multiple times, hands down, this was the most successful interactive exhibit. It's incredibly popular with super young kids. I tell you this example because it's again, it's this like trusting the pencil to be handed to your client and letting them kind of show you and tell you. And then it's on you, and I think it's the skill of designers to be facile enough to be able to synthesize this without being intimidated by it and actually quite the contrary, to be inspired by it. So that's one example of many about research and ways to sort of integrate information, behavioral information, and, and, and frankly, what, what people feel in their hearts about a project and what matters to them the most. And so that example of the Skirball and the Noah's Ark exhibit was at the beginning of the, your career, and now you're kind of coming full circle almost, where with the firm's work on the Berlin Kinder Museum, Correct. which is also about an exhibit um, on the Noah, Noah's Ark. And I guess from that, I'm just wondering how has your understanding of public space evolved over the course of your career, and what do you think public space necessitates in our current time? You know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here with you and your students at the uh, Rice University School of Architecture, and when I come back to universities, I'm reminded of what are the things that happened to me or that I learned when I was in studying architecture that actually affect the career that I'm doing right now. I don't think students necessarily understand that the experiences they're having now and the things they're learning are going to manifest in years to come into actually built work. And so I think that that's actually pretty significant. So for me, I was fortunate enough to study with a really renowned professor. Um, her name is Astra Zurina, or was. She's no longer alive. Uh, it was in the middle of the 1980s, and she was running what I think many regarded as the best foreign study program for architecture in the world at the time. And it happened to be through the University of Washington where I was going to school. And the school was situated over a space in Rome, and she really used history and precedent as a way to teach uh, uh, contemporary and modern thinking and ideas in design. And literally outside the, the sort of studios that she had created there, uh, was the Campo dei Fiori, which is now quite well known, but in the 80s it was, um, it was literally the community sort of piazza. It's, it was uh, ostensibly a flower market, but it was this sort of perfect space uh, in every respect, in terms of daylight, how the sun moved across the space, how people would gather, how shops worked. But what was really significant, and I got up one morning with my camera, and, and there was a little tower uh, that overlooked the project, and I parked myself there in the dark, and took a series of photographs of every 15 minutes of what this square looked like. And I did it for 24 hours with a sleeping bag. And so uh, what you noticed was that at every hour of the day, something very, very different was occurring. In the morning, they were setting up a market about 5 in the morning. And then from 7 to 11, there was this very alive market with Italians yelling and buying vegetables. And, um, and you know, literally th you know, thousands of people moved in. And then it would evolve in the afternoon to people having cafes, and in the evenings, uh, people would come out and have cocktails and make a passeggiata, which is an Italian word for going out for a walk after dinner. 
And then at night, there were night activities. So where every single hour of the day, it was activated and programmed. And I think the role of programs is huge in that regard. Now, take that to a project. Olson Kundig has just completed a $100 million remodel of the Space Needle in Seattle. And this is a project that is open from early in the morning until late at night. And we literally were creating a new form of an observation tower. But in every instance, the lessons from the Campo dei Fiori were actually coming back uh, in that we were literally designing a space that would be active, alive, and different throughout the entire day. And here's another example where the sun comes up and the sun comes down and it still goes on into the evening. And there are a variety of activities and interactions that one can have that will change in the course of the day as a consequence of the way the space is designed. Uh, so pivoting a little bit, I yeah. wanted to talk about uh, the Fifth Facade Project, Great. which is a research project that began with the design of a rooftop park and then kind of transformed into thinking about all the unused rooftops in cities and what you can do with them. Uh, after those explorations, you explored this project through a series of different mediums, drawing, storytelling, film, and then eventually some other rooftop designs came out of it. How does the play between these different forms of representation inform your design process? Great. Let me describe the Fifth Facade project a bit, and then, and then I'll circle back to the, uh, very specifically to the questions. After I did the Noah's Ark project, I was asked to actually do other projects for children, and some of them were in Korea. And this one client wanted us to make these rooftop parks, uh, you know, really large gardens on the top of buildings, existing buildings, which was a really fantastic challenge and a great thing to think about. And they were very quick studies and quick projects, and we loved working on them. But we were challenged somewhat by a desire to really utilize uh, the use of rooftops. And I agree with your assessment. Cities uh, universally across the country, for the most part, have this layer that we call the fifth facade, which is the rooftops and the tops of, of the buildings, that is largely underutilized. And it provides tremendous potential, I think, for the development of cities in many, many respects. And we were interested in sustainable issues, energy harvesting, places for children to play in the sunlight again, um, out of the shadows of tall buildings. And so we made a conceptual project. And I worked on this with Jerome Tryon, who's now at uh, Yale Graduate School, but he worked with us for a number of years. And he can draw beautifully. We both draw. And we made an enormous mural. And uh, we made it a big drawing. And it was of, it was of our neighborhood in Seattle, but it was an aerial view um, looking at it as if you were flying over it. And then we um, really played with structures of ownership. We connected the buildings with through pathways, imagining the upper layer of buildings was actually a public area and public space. And then we started to add every single idea that we could about energy harvesting of all forms, the growth of food, animal harvesting, and sort of continuing it in that regard. And so the mural was finished. We invited all these people in in the course of the mural. We're drawing in charcoal on a huge piece of canvas. We would have urban designers, landscape people, sustainable strategists come in. We would have crits. They'd give us ideas, educators. Uh, the, the list went on and on. And, and then we would revise the drawing based on the new things that we were learning as a consequence of having conversations with a lot of different kinds of people. And then it was finished, and I asked Jerome if he knew of any competitions that we could enter it in. And he came back and he said, you know, uh, there's a competition called Fairy Tales, the story of architecture. It's the largest architectural ideas competition in the world. They get about 1,500 entries. It's about narrative-based uh, work, so you have to submit renderings, and they tend to be somewhat architectural, and architects tend to be great at the development of those. 
And there also has to be a, a, a written story that goes along with it. And so what we decided to do was take this huge mural drawing of a kind of surreal idea for the rooftops of Seattle in our neighborhood. And then we turned that into a science fiction story um, that I wrote one weekend um, really quickly. And then we submitted it. And it was so much fun. And it was so interesting to move from nonfiction, which is built work, like the work that we did on the rooftops, into the realm of fiction and science fiction. And so uh, we created this story. And then we had so much fun that I said, let's make a film out of this project. And let's uh, post it on our website on the day that we find out that we lose and just talk about how much fun it was and how we support this. So I then sat down with uh, three of my colleagues and said, let's make a film. And let's use the collateral from the mural and from this competition, because we did these five, Jerome primarily did these five amazing renderings that actually describe the story. And then we finished the film, and we loved it, and we were ready to post it. And I got an email on the ferry boat coming to work one morning that we had won the competition, which just blew our minds. And frankly, you know, people have perceptions about architecture firms, and I don't know that there was anyone in the world, perhaps uh, besides our marketing director, who thought that we had a shot at winning this thing. And, and Olson Kennedy was probably be the last firm that would enter a conceptual design competition in some people's minds, but in our minds, like, absolutely not. And so we were thrilled to win. The bottom line to this is I really like the way that architects think, and I really believe in it. And I love taking the architects in our firm and the people I work with and throwing them into lanes of pools that they don't usually swim in. And so in this instance, I loved forcing them to think about fictional ideas as a way of pushing actual built work. We followed that up, lastly, with uh, the creation of a, a graphic novel or a zine that we printed. And again, taking another team of people, um, some of the same players actually on this one, and basically saying now we're going to sort of break this down and we're going to use the movie footage, which you can use as stills, you can use the mural, you can use the five renderings from the competition, so we're always reusing the collateral, and now you have to make it into another form and another narrative form, and then the project changed even further. Now, why is this useful and why is it interesting to go from nonfiction to fiction, but in, in our minds, um, it pushed so many ideas, like we are so more prepared for the next time we're invited to do a project on a rooftop, to actually integrate ideas and research into the history of rooftop design, um, but largely into the sustainable strategies that could be implemented. So when a client is ready, we're really ready to go. And using those different narrative forms, storytelling, film, even moving beyond that, now in, in recent years, virtual and augmented reality technology has increasingly been used in architectural representations. So what do you think their role is? alongside all of this other architectural representation that we already utilize. I was uh, fortunate about four or five years ago to attend uh, a conference uh, in Staten Island, New York, called The Future of Storytelling. And it was the year before the goggles or the eyewear that you would wear for virtual reality was actually going to go public and be on the public market. And if you think about the design processes for how these things get rolled out, all of these companies that were developing virtual reality, of course, had creative partnerships where they were experimenting with their ideas so that they could be prepared with software that could actually be used once the eyewear or the goggles actually became available. And I saw extraordinary experiments in that workshop. And I think the most significant one for me was a sort of virtual reality experience where you literally have the headset on and you're walking around an environment and you were dropped in a refugee camp in Syria. And the project was called Clouds Over Sidra. And Sidra is a little girl that was in the camp that they filmed. 
but you literally are in her tent that's made out of blue tarp and you're looking around and you're seeing her brother come running in and then he and his friends running out you're seeing her grandmother like trying to cook something in the middle of the floor if you think about it we all look outside at these experiences that happen around the world and it was this sudden awareness that you could actually be inside looking out and that was one of the greatest uses of, of virtual reality that i've seen now i have to say that i'm a little disappointed, but I think it's just a matter of time um, with the ways that a virtual reality is being used. And uh, let's be clear, a lot of us are using virtual reality so that our clients can sort of literally walk around the projects we're designing. And that as a tool is, is extraordinary. And um, we're seeing it on the reactions of our clients, like suddenly they're in, the, uh, in a living room that they might own one day or in the lobby of a building they might own. And there's so many great reactions. I had no idea the window would be so big. Can we move this wall over? This room feels too small. How do we expand it? So from as a design tool, it's, it's really, really strong. But I think that the next level is to sort of begin to approach it like Clouds Over Sidra, which is that you can actually sort of edit these things or treat them in a more cinematic way by still allowing the viewer to have full control over where they look and what they do. And I think there's a story component that can actually tell the story of architectural ideas that will represent a next level beyond just showing a project, um, which, again, I, I don't want to undermine how important that is, but I do think there's potential to take that even further. And one idea that I have in my head, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that most cities around the world are being digitally modeled. And so suddenly, if everything is modeled, then through um, the other forms of uh, virtual reality and the ability to add information and video and, uh, and content, you can literally turn the world into an activated museum that can teach you things. If I were to have a virtual reality headset on and I could program and plug into my phone history of jazz music or history of music in Seattle, I could then walk down the street and literally see where Jimi Hendrix played in certain clubs and where certain blues singers actually began and came and sang here and where underground spaces were located. And then factor in any layer of any aspect of history, and suddenly the world itself becomes the museum, and you've turned the museum inside out on some level. Yeah, that would be such an interesting thing to be able to learn from cities as we're moving through them. Yeah, think about you know urbanistically what you could learn, the history of architecture, what are the buildings that were here before, what did the configuration look like? It could be visualized because, again, everything can be modeled. Yes, and to talk a little bit more about narrative, as you already mentioned, the fifth facade becomes a graphic novel in one of its iterations, so there's obviously a narrative involved in that kind of work. But other projects for institutions like the Berlin Kinner Museum draw on a number of disparate influences to create both a narrative and a formal idea for the space. Can you talk a little bit about how you and your team gather these influences and then fuse them together into a design? Sure. There's two instances I'll, I'll tell you about, Lindsay. The first one is the Jewish Museum of Berlin they were inspired by the Skirball project, and they created an international design competition. And uh, they were going to do their own version of the Noah's Ark project, but they were very, very uh, inspired and informed by the really innovative work that Skirball had done. And so the competition of probably over 100 firms entered. It was an anonymous competition, but we obviously went after it because it had a lot of things that we were extremely interested in. Now, we were interested in it from a sort of equity perspective because uh, when the competition was happening, Germany was accepting more refugees from around the world than any other country in the world, and we were impressed by that deeply and realizing that the melting pot of Berlin and all of these different cultures that have moved there 
that this could become a place where all children could play and all children could be welcome. And it's, I think it's very hard to have animosity towards people that you love. And if you are making friendships at an early age, then that could be super meaningful. So that became the premise for our competition. And we started to do research. And one of the people on the team had found a book of research that had come out by a curator from the British Museum, I believe. And he had discovered a tablet that had been carved that was thousands of years old that he had just finished translating. It predated the Old Testament by thousands of years. It was Sumerian. And it was about a character. It had a different name, but it was similar to Noah and then, and very similar story with animals and so on. But it had very specific uh, dimensions for how to design an ark. And what he discovered, which was remarkable, is that this tablet described a round ark. And so we were really interested in the idea of that as a form that we could use to make a building within the building with. But we were equally interested in how much our sketches of this look like the spaceship in Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. And this idea that it would become this modern structure that could be a modern arc where children could actually make up their own stories and have their own adventures was actually much, much more interesting to us. So again, it was studying not only the forms that were created by the art director in Kubrick's film, but also in what we read about and learned from the dimensions that were in an ancient, ancient piece of text. But somehow together those things informed the structure that is currently under construction, and I just got back from the site, and we're really, really excited about it. And that's actually the firm's first international museum project? That's correct, that correct, yeah. And I think that's a reason to underscore the importance of competitions. Competitions are a way of doing the things that nobody yet has asked you to do or going to the places where no one yet has invited you. In recent years, I've been lucky to be involved in a bunch and have, have won a bunch, and we're doing the Bob Dylan Archive, which is the public-facing center for the collections of thousands of pieces of his work and videos. And again, that never would have come to us if we hadn't entered that competition. Uh, the Jewish Museum of Berlin is another, and the Fairy Tales competition is another. And so it's a way of pushing yourselves that gets you to try on things that you maybe never have tried before. All of these different competitions and museums um, in different public spaces are kind of in a lot of different contexts with different histories to them. And you've said that you treat a site almost like a found object where it's something with a past history to it. So how does the context play into the design of these projects? Tonight, I'm speaking here at the university with my colleague Blair Payson, and we worked on a lot of projects together at Olson Kundig. And the theme for the series is about architecture and obsolescence. And it's been fascinating to me because a lot of the books that I work on are actually adaptive reuse of other kinds of structures. The Jewish Museum of Berlin is a 1960s concrete a brutalist structure that we are now putting a modern arc for children inside of it. And so these transitions are actually interesting. But there's another project that we're working on called Recompose Life, and this is about the other end of the spectrum of designing for children, which is designing an alternative form of burial for humans. And so there's a woman in Seattle named Katrina Spade, and I met her years ago, and she went to architecture school at UMass, and her thesis project was on human composting and how to turn human bodies into organic soil. And she's just that kind of person that uh, has an idea and just decided she would devote her life to it. And so she has moved to Seattle, and she's continued to develop this and raise money to develop the idea. It usually takes a human body three years to decompose, and she has designed a system that will turn a human body into organic soil in about three months. 
Not only that, but she's progressed the idea so much that the state of Washington has made it legal for this to happen, and it's the first state in the United States. And so if you study how other things have moved across the country politically over the years, it will go state by state. And because cremation is so toxic and because there's no more land left, the fact that any of us could actually become soil that could grow food or trees to create oxygen and actually make a contribution not only has she gotten the governor to sign this into law, and she's now working on the licensing process with people in government, but she also is going to start building the first facility for this to happen, and it will be in Seattle. And the structure is literally an old industrial structure, and it has a huge wood uh, truss ceiling for a wide span, so it's pretty much all open beneath. It's a beautiful old raw space. And so transforming what is an industrial use into one that is actually has a spiritual use for many, which is where you know memorial services will be held there, and this process will go on. And there needs to be tremendous sensitivity to the ways that families are integrated into this process and how their loved ones are treated. So it's probably the last use that you would ever imagine of this found object of this building, but in truth it will be transformed into something that we hope and believe will actually change the world on some level. And so creating buildings for kids and then all the way along the range for kind of end of life processes, how do you come to work on all these different ranges of projects? Do you, <laughs> have you sought out involvement in some of these? Did they come to you almost naturally or have some of them just been created or self-directed? A couple of the ones I mentioned are competitions. And so again, I know I've, I've mentioned this a couple times, but I do believe that for a firm to push themselves, that they are a fantastic way of getting new work and trying out new ideas. So the Bob Dylan Archive, the Jewish Museum of Berlin, those are examples where we're actually building work uh, based on ideas that were projected in competitions. So I think that's one way. I think the other way is that you know we just have interesting people that call us up. I've been lucky to work with some of the great entrepreneurs uh, created a project for Melinda Gates and for Jeff Bezos, and this is just a huge honor. Part of it's the people you meet in the world, it's the projects that you've completed already, it's the ideas you go after. Partially they come to us just because I think people are used to that they might get something unexpected that maybe never has been done before in some respects, but then there's also things that we just go after on our own. You know, the Skirball Project, I think this is a good message for students actually, which is the Skirball Project, a friend of mine had told me We'd never designed a children's museum. I just happened to be a teacher once and for 10 years and really liked working with kids. And so a friend sent me the RFP, and it was uh, 27 pages, and it sounded like the greatest project and this thing they wanted to create. And they had invited 11 firms to submit for it. And they couldn't have invited us because we'd never done anything like it before. So we just submitted anyway. And they were expecting 11 proposals, and they got 12. And we were very polite and respectful, but just said we cannot hold back on submitting to this project because we are think it could be amazing. And it was a bit of a design competition, and we kept just going after it. And in some instances, your lack of experience can be your greatest asset. And I've actually noticed, and I think this is something that happens a lot, that the first time we do a new kind of project is a way of pushing yourselves to do something even further. But sometimes, you know, I don't think we were rude about it or aggressive, but we very politely just kind of said, can we put our hat in this ring? And I think it's something that people should consider um, as they go forward, that uh, no one minds interest, no one minds passion, and I think people really recognize that. And frankly, it can be pretty exciting. And if you don't even try, you'll never know if it was something oh. that would work out. 
in the first place. Yeah, you should put a lot of exclamation points after that because I, I, I completely agree. You got to get in there. So more broadly, thinking about also some of these research projects that you and the firm have taken on, how would you suggest designers kind of look for opportunities to branch out if they want to do a little bit more architectural experimentation or kind of working on some of these projects that aren't necessarily built work but are thinking about what the future of architecture could be? I think Olson Kundig does a, a number of things. One of them is that I mentioned it earlier, but I'll, I'll describe the office crit. Every Thursday at 4.30, we turn off computers, put down uh, whatever we're drawing with, and we all gather. There's 200 of us, but probably about 150 will show up. And one team will present a project, and it will be at some point in the design process, conceptual design, schematic design, design development. And then the entire office, anybody, including interns that might have arrived in the door from Mumbai the day before to Jim Olson, who's just celebrated his 79th birthday and is still practicing all over the world, anybody can chime in. The playing field is leveled. And often we get out paper and people are sketching and developing ideas. And what happens is a team, you have your own ideas about a project, but then suddenly you're going to get a hundred other perspectives on how to think about it, how to research it, and how to go deeper. And we are religious about this grit. It's been going on for probably 25 or 30 years, so long before I got to the firm. And it is probably our greatest discipline. I've probably mentioned competitions too much, but I think that that's one way to push yourself, especially if you want to be doing something different than what you're doing. Then, you know, they're an investment, uh, but they're usually really fun and really challenging. So I think that's another way to actually get out there. I think from our standpoint, the storefront was a huge chance for us to learn about ways of creating new forms of collaboration. It was enormous, and it was enormous culturally. I'm going to wind up this answer, Lindsay, by saying that we all become architects because we want to design projects. What we never realize is that we can actually design culture, and we can design culture within the context of an architecture firm. Kirsten and I created the storefront together, but we also created an international internship program where architects right out of school come and work with us for six months, and they have come from over 35 countries and every state in the United States, and they work with us for six months. And there's an example where we have benefited so greatly, but also about 500 or 600 people have gone through this program. So the making of things like crits or speaker series or having these programs where people are mentored and taught these are the kind of things that I think actually push firms, and I don't think any of us realize that we can create those things just as well as uh, the design of a museum or a project. Just kind of wrapping up a little bit more on that, you talked about a lot of the things that Olsen Kundig does as a collective, so I wanted to talk about how you're both a principal and now you have an ownership stake in the firm. What does it mean to be an owner of the firm to you, and how has that shaped the trajectory of the firm and the projects you've been able to work on? So Olson Kundig was founded by Jim Olson in the 1960s. And so we are in our, what decade? Is that the sixth decade? So uh, we've tried to keep the window open for a long time. And part of that, I believe, is due to the notion of having really high standards, but also to change and the ability to sort of grow and modify with and being inspired by things that are happening in the world and transitioning. There have been a number of partners over the years, and then Tom Kundig came along, and Tom became a partner, and the firm became Olson Kundig. And then Kirsten Murray and Kevin Kudo King are my other partners at Olson Kundig. And we're joined by 11 principals and many associates, and then the rest of the collective at Olson Kundig. 
To be a partner at our firm means that you are an owner of the firm and that you have a, an investment in it financially, but you also have an investment in it personally where you want to keep 200 people gainfully employed, working on great projects, and keeping their families going as well. And so it's a much, much larger community in that regard. I think each of the five of us has brought a different angle into the firm. I know that Jim Olson and Tom and Kirsten and Kevin, they all are doing projects all over the world. They do all kinds of projects. We all love cultural projects. We all do them. They also have a very strong residential portfolio, and I've stayed focused in the more public realm personally because that's where my interests lie. But the four of them, I think, have just done extraordinary works working on a lot of net zero residences and houses at the moment, which is super exciting. Kirsten has developed uh, workplace design, and she has a passion for the ways that groups of people come together to work together on a day-to-day basis. And I've had this interest in these sort of unusual, quirky projects, like recomposing human beings to designing of museums around narratives based on an ancient Sumerian text carved into a stone. And so I think for me, there is that angle. When you're part of a collective of ownership, you know, a lot of people are puzzled by this, but if you actually look at it, there's so many firms that are actually created by collectives of individuals that work together. And as I've studied them over the years, the thing I notice about them is that they share values, they share beliefs, they share knowledge, and they self-critique one another. I've worked with my fellow partners for almost 27 years, and so uh, I know them and I know their work, and there's nobody that I trust more or believe in more. And so that's the benefit, I think, of being in a partnership, especially a really ambitious one that really wants to sort of continue to have new design challenges around the world. And having that really well-rounded group of people who all have different interests, work on different projects, coming together brings us right back to the beginning. What can we do together that we cannot do apart? So That's perfect. Thank you for being with us today, Alan. Lindsay, really what a enjoyed. pleasure. And what great questions. Thanks yeah, a lot. Yeah, really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. For more information on our fall lecture series, visit the Rice Architecture website. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Petatech.